William Carey was born on August 17, 1761 in Pollersbury, England. At one point in his youth, he, he began a quest for spiritual truth that led him away from the Church of England to a congregational church and then to a group of Baptists among whom he was baptized in 1783. <clears throat> Three years later, he found himself pastoring a small Baptist church when he sensed the call to missions. And the concept of missions first captured his attention when he was reading The Last Voyage of Captain Cook. To most, Cook's journal was a, just a thrilling adventure story, but to carry it was a revelation of human need among those who did not know Christ. He was a cobbler, that was someone who worked on shoes, and also a serious student who always seemed to have some kind of book in front of him as he cobbled shoes. The more he read and studied, the more convinced he became that the peoples of the world need Christ. He read book after book, he took notes, he constructed a great leather globe. And then one day, in the quietness of his cobbler's shop, he heard the call. His words, If it be the duty of all men to believe the gospel, then it be the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among all nations. And carry sob, here am I, send me. Well, to surrender to the call to missions was one thing, and to get to the mission field was quite another. There was no missionary societies, and, and really there was no missionary interest at that time. And one of the greatest challenges to him, the greatest obstacle to, to becoming a missionary, came from those who should have been his greatest supporters. He was at a pastor's meeting in 1787 when he decided to raise the question of the responsibility of the church to reach the world with the gospel. And a renowned Baptist pastor, John Ryland Sr., is said to have stood up and proclaimed to William Carey, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. And he was right about one thing. God doesn't need our help. And he's right to believe in the sovereignty of God, but I don't know that he understands the sovereignty of God. I don't think he understood how sovereignty works. God accomplishes his purposes. He is sovereign, but he uses means to do it. The statement by Ryland expresses a disturbing amount of ignorance of the Bible and, as we'll see, the book of Acts in particular. If sovereignty means what he implies, then why do anything? Why pray? Why preach? Why study? Why God gather as God's people? And the answer to those questions, it's never to accomplish our purposes, it's to accomplish God's. It's, it's to be His instruments to accomplish His purposes. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Not sit down, He said, Go. So we're starting the book of Acts this morning, and Acts is the story of God's people going and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth by God's power, by God's sovereignty, and for God's glory. The book, the book of Acts is really the second book in a two-volume set written by Luke, the first being the gospel according to Luke, the account of all that Jesus began to do and teach while he was on earth. It is the story of the finished work of Christ. 
Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished, meaning the substitutionary atonement was finished. The sins of all of God's people for all of time were at that moment paid in full. But the conclusion of the Gospels is not the conclusion of God's work in the world. The atonement is finished. The story is not finished. The story goes on. The word goes out. The church is born. The kingdom has come like a mustard seed. It starts really small and is now expanding. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. First, I'm going to read the end of Luke's Gospel as that leads right into Acts chapter 1. So Luke, first of all, Luke 24, verse 45 says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Verse 48, You are witnesses of these things. And then finally, verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That is where Luke's gospel ends. And now we move into volume 2, Acts 1, verse 1. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's very word, his holy inerrant, inspired word. May we treat it as such. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for who you are and what you've done to make yourself known to us. Pray that we'd receive now with gladness what you have for us, that we'd receive it in humility, in repentance, that we would turn and follow you wherever you would have us go. Grant us that now by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in these first verses in Acts, I see three major themes that, that play out not only here in the beginning but throughout the book of Acts. And these major themes are, number one, the glory of the gospel. Number two, the advancement of the kingdom of God. And three, the power of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, the glory of the gospel. 
Gospel just means good news. Gospel means good news. When we speak of the gospel, we mean the good news that Jesus died to save sinners. That Jesus on the cross took the just punishment earned by sinners, absorbed the wrath of God deserved by sinners, and rose victorious over sin and death, that sinners would not only be saved from eternal hell, but saved to eternal joy in the presence of God in heaven. The gospel, the good news is is not about what good you have done or good you might do or good you could someday do if you only got this and this and this in order. It's not about your own efforts to make yourself better. The, The good news is not about you at all. It's not what you can do at all. You can do nothing. The gospel is what God has done in the person of Christ. He paid the bill in full. If you are a true Christian, it is because Jesus covered it all for you. You contributed nothing to it. You repented and believed, yes, and that was granted to you as well. We tend to miss the glory of of the gospel because we fail to see the extent of what's been done for us. We, we think of ourselves as good people. I'm a good person. I, I could do a little better, sure, but I'm basically good. And those thoughts only work when we compare ourselves to other sinners, right? When Jesus showed up, he wrecked the curve. We couldn't do that anymore. If you can fool yourself into thinking that you do, in fact, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength, and that you do, in fact, love your neighbor as yourself, you you can't look at the life of Christ and still think that. Jesus, with all of his energy, loved his Father. With all of his mind, every minute of every day, He loved his Father with everything he had, with all of his strength. All of the time, he was passionate for his Father. And he lived for his Father's glory. So surrendered was he to his Father's will that that he could ponder the crucifixion and and cry out, God, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup be taken from me. And yet say, not my will, but yours be done. That's how surrendered he was to his father. So great was his love for his neighbor that he would ask that they be forgiven. His enemies, those who mocked him and crucified him, He asked that they be forgiven. He would restrain his power that was at his disposal to crush those who would curse him and mock him and crucify him. He would seek out the untouchable. He would touch the untouchable. He would seek out the outcast. Consider the life of Christ. And then think about how good you are. We don't compare to Christ. Think back to high school physics and, and the, there was that test, maybe all of them, all the physics tests. You just bombed it, right? And you walked out of the test knowing that you just bombed it. You got maybe 50% and you're just feeling terrible about it and you kind of gather up with your classmates and everyone's moaning about how terrible they did and this test was so hard and, 
Everyone knows they did so poorly, but as you hear these other reports, suddenly you have hope, right? A little hope starts to rise up in you. If I scored 50%, but so did everyone else, maybe the teacher will grade on the curve. Maybe 50% will be a passing grade. If everyone did poorly, it proves the test was unfair. Morally, the teacher will have, have to make it right. But, but then there was that one kid, right? You know what I'm saying? The one nerd that proved it could be done. Everyone else got a 40 or 50 or 60, and, and this guy got a 90 or a 95 or probably a 100. And do you remember how everyone just jumped to their feet and gave this guy a, a round of applause and a standing ovation? Of course not. No one likes that person. Make us all look bad. Right? And that's what Jesus did. He, he broke the curve. He, he made everyone look bad. They were already bad. They, they failed to live up to God's perfect standard even without Him to show them that it was true. But, but His life made it plain as day. And, and for rebels and idolaters and hypocrites like you and me, for people like us, He gave His perfect life. He gave His perfection. He took our sin he bore our sin and He gave us His perfection that we can stand before God perfect in Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's an incre incredible message for those who would receive it. It's incredible news. It's good news, right? So amazing that, that those who would believe it would be transformed to, it th to the extent that they would, they would give up everything to make it known. And, and to be transformed in that kind of way, that message, the gospel message, has to be true. There can't be uncertainty regarding it. It must be trustworthy. It must be bankable, verifiable. Verse 3, Luke says, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. In, back in Luke 24, Luke mentioned how Jesus showed them how He fulfilled the Scriptures. The Scriptures was for them the Old Testament. Many Old Testament Scriptures are clear references to Jesus, prophecies about who He was and what He would do. A couple of my favorites, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, the disciples witness Psalm 22 play out before them in, in the last day and hours of Jesus' life. Jesus quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, from the cross. Verse 7, he says, All who see me mock me. They, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Written thousand, a thousand years before any of those things happened to Christ. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Which gospel was this from again? That's from Isaiah, centuries before Jesus. Clear picture of what Jesus would do in giving his life for sinners. And yet, the disciples missed it. These were their scriptures. They knew these verses. You wonder how they could have these verses, know Jesus, hear him teach, observe his life, and miss the kind of salvation that he came to bring. And in, back in Luke 24, verse 45 again, he explains that Jesus had to open their minds to understand the Scriptures. Then in addition to the fulfilled prophecy, there were witnesses. He appeared to them after his resurrection. They heard him speak. They saw his scars they saw him eat. They saw a physical body after his resurrection. He proved it wasn't all some fairy tale. It, it really happened. If you remember back to 1 John, John made a big deal out of the fact that they saw him, they heard him, they touched him. It's reality. One of the more compelling arguments, for me anyway, about the truth of the resurrection of Christ is the lives of the disciples. The, the, those who were witnesses, who, who claimed to have firsthand knowledge of the resurrected Christ. And because they had seen and heard and touched him, they knew the reality. They knew it. They were willing to die for it. That's how certain they were of it. Clinging to that truth, proclaiming that truth. Many or most of them would pay the ultimate, ultimate price for proclaiming the resurrection. Why would you give your life? for something that wasn't true? Why would you die for a lie or a prank? What would they have to gain? The apostles at many points had opportunity to say, kidding, didn't really happen, just kidding about all that, and they could walk away from suffering and death, but they did not. They never did. They went all the way out with it. And we see this as we move through Acts. Those who know the reality of Jesus' death, his burial and resurrection, they're willing to give up everything for him. So what I want us to see about biblical saving faith and our response to the message is that saving faith is, is not a leap in the dark. It's not wishfully hoping for something. It's not to create a fantasy or believe a fantasy. Biblical saving faith is trust in objective reality. It's trusting in a real person, the God-man who actually walked the earth, who was literally crucified on a real cross and physically rose from the dead. Luke is not writing a religious book. His objective is not to teach religious rituals or ceremonies or creeds. Luke is writing, first of all, a history book, a true account of events that actually happened. It was true of the gospel, and it's true of the book of Acts. 
And we see the glory of this good news as the story unfolds. The glory of the gospel. It's foundational for what happens next. And additionally, we learn in Acts about the advancement of the kingdom of God. Learn about the advancement of the kingdom of God. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's rule in the hearts and lives of his people. Not a kingdom that, that makes itself visible with a, a marching army or something like that. It's an invisible kingdom that rules from within. Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is within you. And his people, his servants as citizens of this kingdom receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. The apostles, for, for the apostles, the kingdom of God meant preaching the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, calling people to live under his rightful rule over them, thus making disciples of all nations and growing the kingdom of God as more and more people come to live as citizens of the kingdom. This is and always will be our Father's world. God is absolutely sovereign. He is in control. The devil is still God's devil, as Martin Luther called him. The, the dominion that Satan has is permitted by God. And now with the advent of the kingdom, with the coming of Christ, that dominion is beginning to diminish. What starts small will increasingly expand. Mar Matthew 13, 31, Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Verse 33, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Kingdom of God has come and is expanding. It starts small and it is growing. Jesus had a lot to say about the kingdom. And yet, those who heard him talk about it the most didn't seem to understand it. The disciples bickering about who would be the greatest in God's kingdom. James and John asking to, be, to sit at his right and his left in his kingdom when he comes in glory, wanting positions of power and authority in this political kingdom they were expecting Jesus to establish, thinking Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and, and King Jesus would rule a liberated Israel in the same way that King David did centuries before. didn't seem to matter what he said. They never really got it. It's, it's like when you pile your kids into the minivan for a road trip and you've got 10 hours to go, but, but you're barely out of the driveway when you hear what? Are we there yet? No, of course not. Well, 90 seconds later, how about now? Jesus, when are you going to defeat the Romans and take the throne? My kingdom is not of this world. Oh, okay. How about now? They didn't understand. They didn't understand the power, for one thing. They didn't understand the place of Israel in redemptive history. Go back to Genesis 12.3. God's call to Abram, who would become Father Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was called and blessed. 
And in Him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families, all the nations, blessed through Him. God's blessing didn't terminate on Abraham and his physical descendants. Abraham wasn't the point. Abraham was an instrument that would be used by God to bless the nations. Fast forward to one other example, to the Israelites in crushing bondage in Egypt. And Moses is sent to give Pharaoh this, this message from the Lord, Exodus 9:16. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God, in the midst of an incredibly miraculous deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, he creates this confrontation with, with Pharaoh and with Pharaoh's false gods and Egypt's false gods. Why has he done this? Just for the sake of Israel? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. It's for the nations. His theme goes throughout the Old Testament, and yet they missed it. People of Israel missed this again and again, and we see it in this passage. They, they want to be the center of the universe, and Jesus is telling them, it's not about you. you. You have been chosen. You have been blessed. Yes, not to sit, not to soak, not to rule, not to be served, to go, to serve, to bless. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That the timing of an event at the end of the last days is not your concern. There is something very important that comes first. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They will receive power. Not the kind of power they were looking for, maybe, but... They will receive power. We'll come back to that. Verse 9, And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There is a time coming when Jesus will rule his kingdom with a rod of iron, Revelation 19, when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. It is already, but it is not yet all that it will be. That's coming. Jesus went up the same way he's going to come down, visibly, bodily, with great glory. A cloud took him out of sight, verse 9. Often in the Bible, the cloud served as a symbol of divine glory. This is not an ordinary cloud. It represents the glory of God. There's so much that could be said about the ascension, but I just want to highlight this one point, that he ascended in glory and he will return in glory. These two angels are, are letting them know he's coming back. We can look forward to that. Right? Be excited about that. It is not now. Until then, what is going to follow for the disciples, now apostles, as, the, as they are sent out, is incredible. We'll see in Acts that they, that they go. <laughs> they go at, at great personal cost, with immense danger and, and risk, with suffering, and with great joy, they go, which is astounding. 
weeks prior, when, when Jesus was arrested, they, they would not even be named as Jesus' followers. Peter vehemently denied even knowing Jesus, even to a slave girl. The disciples scattered. They feared for their lives. They hid. And then Jesus comes back from the dead, shows up in their house, lets them see him and touch his scars, and later he would cook fish and eat with them. He reminds them of all that has happened is what he said he was going to do. And still they're huddled up. Some of them went back to fishing. They, they seem reluctant to go. And in spite of the most incredible of all miracles and prophecies fulfilled. Verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Takes us back to the beginning of Luke, Luke 3, 16. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jump to the end of Luke 24, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So they're waiting for this baptism of the Holy Spirit. The word baptize means to immerse. It just means to immerse. The promise is that they will be immersed in the Holy Spirit, clothed with power from on high. What does that mean exactly? We would like to know. Well, let me give you some things that Jesus said um, in John. He said something really puzzling in John 16, first of all. He's telling the disciples that he'll be going away. And they're, of course, filled with sorrow. And he says, John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Right? The helper is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus goes, he will send the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought how much easier it would be to do the Christian life if we just had physical Jesus with us? If we could walk with Jesus the way the disciples did, face-to-face, -face, have lunch together, go to the gym together, listen to him teach, hang out with him? Right? Wouldn't that just make it easier to follow him? But think about it. The disciples had that. They had that. They could ask a question, and Jesus could answer it, and they still didn't know. They missed so much of what he was saying. They missed the glory of who he was. They're blind to incredible realities. What could be better than actually walking and talking with, with God in the flesh? The Spirit of God within you. The Helper as he's called in John 16, 7. And in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He guides his people into the truth. Verse 14, he will glorify me. The Spirit glorifies Jesus, points people to Jesus. Back in John 14, verse 26, he said, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Right? So the, the Spirit brings to our mind the, the truth of God's Word. The words that we have heard and know, He brings them to mind. 
See, it's, it's one thing to know the truth of something. It's something else to actually see the glory of that truth, to get the proper weight of something that is true. Unbelievers can know the facts of the gospel. Right? They can have it intellectually. They can know the truth of it and be unmoved by it. The Holy Spirit brings to light what is true, brings to mind the words of Jesus and also the glory of the truth of the Word. To be a true Christian is not just to have an intellectual agreement with the truth. It is to love the truth. It is to see the gospel as beautiful and glorious and amazing. The Holy Spirit does that in us. Brings us the truth and the experience of the truth and the knowledge of the truth and the love for the truth. Puritan pastor Thomas Goodwin tells the story of a man and his little child walking down the road. And they're just walking hand in hand. The child knows that he is the child of the father. He knows that his father loves him. He rejoices in that and he is happy in that. There's no uncertainty about it at all. But suddenly the father, moved by some impulse, picks up that child and takes him in his arms and hugs him and embraces him and showers his love upon him and then puts the child down. And they go on walking together. That is it, Goodwin says. The child knew before that his father loved him. He knew that he was his child, but oh, the loving embrace, the extra outpouring of his love, this unusual manifestation of it, that is the kind of thing. See, this, this is the Holy Spirit reminding us of the glory of our sonship, what it means to be God's children, our adoption as God's children. Romans eight sixteen, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Not just the truth of it, the glory of it. In Galatians 4, 4, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Spirit brings to heart and mind the glory of the truth of our adoption. J.I. Packer said it like this in Knowing God. He said, as God loved his only begotten son, so he loves his adopted sons. As God loved his only begotten son, so he loves his adopted sons. And I would encourage you to contemplate this for a time this week because I think it's hard for us to grasp in the entirety of what's being said there. God the Father loves his adopted children as much as he loves Jesus. How, how could he? <laughs> how, does he not know me? He knows the, the number of the hairs on my head. He, he knows the motives of my heart. And I think that's where our disconnect is. We, we think of love as something that we, we want to try to earn and achieve and be worthy of. But that's not why God has adopted us as his children. He's adopted us as his children because of him, because of his love. So great is his love for us that it depends not on our worthiness. And, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit overcomes our doubt, 
overcomes our darkened minds and makes the truth of our adoption as God's children bright as day, not just in the head, but in the heart, like, like that father who picked up that son and embraced him. And so joyful obedience is fueled as I live out of this reality, who God is, what he has done, the glory of the gospel. The apostles would be submerged in the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit, clothed with power from on high. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit would be poured out on them and they would go. This verse is something of a playbook for the book of Acts. They started in Jerusalem, then they went to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They went. And they didn't, they didn't do it by flexing their, their willpower. They didn't do it by gritting their teeth and, and just go. They went with joy. They went with boldness. They went because the Spirit had given them eyes to see the superior treasure they had in Christ, that he was greater than their comfort, that he was greater than their safety, that he was greater than their personal possessions. They were promised power. They were promised power. And we think power, political power, the ability to exert your will over someone or something, power over, that's how we commonly think of power. The power of the Holy Spirit is power under it's to empower. It's empowering. It's power that liberates us from bondage to ourselves. And it's power for ministry. It's power to serve, to bless, to go. We circle up here every Sunday morning, and, and we gather up in small groups and youth group and all kinds of events, various activities. We circle up as a church. We exist as a church, not simply to soak, to sit, to be served and to be blessed, but to go and serve and bless. We are empowered for this purpose. So seek first the kingdom of God. Matthew 6.33 Seek His kingdom. Seek His rule and reign in your heart. Respond to the amazing message of the gospel with, Here I am. God, send me that we would be clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. Now we praise you for the incredible message of the gospel, for what you have done because of who you are, because of your great love for sinners, and the promise of your Holy Spirit that you give to those who believe and that we experience as we live and surrender to you. Pray that you grant us hearts that would do that, that would commit to you, that would go where you want us to go, that would surrender to your purposes, that, that your name would be made known in all the earth. For the glory of your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray.